It's Monday, March 27th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution, but I'm not the only fellow who's podcasting these days. Uh, if you don't believe me, go to our website, which is hoover.org, and check it out for yourself. Click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says Commentary. Scroll over to Multimedia, then check out where it says Audio Podcast. You'll find 17 of them in all. Um, all sorts of subjects covered, including uh, what we do here at Matters of Policy and Politics. We also have what we call a monthly pod blast, which is delivered to your inbox uh, monthly. I recommend you sign up for that as well. My guests today are David Brady and Douglas Rivers. Dave Brady is the Hoover Institution's Davies Family Senior Fellow Emeritus and the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McCoy Professor of Political Science at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. Doug Rivers is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a Stanford University Political Scientist. He's also a pollster of great renown, Chief Scientist at YouGov PLC, a global polling firm. They're here to talk about the latest in politics and public opinion. Guys, great to see you. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having us. So circumstance would have it, the three of us did a podcast almost exactly one year ago at this time, was March 22nd of 2022. The big story then, the war in Ukraine, and which at the time was just a month old, and the looming midterm elections. We won't uh, get into what we thought would happen in the midterms. That's something we just, I think, just as soon sweep under the table. Uh, But a year later, here we are with a uh, different set of distractions for you. Uh, There's still the question of Ukraine and the question of American involvement, which uh, ties into the upcoming Republican primary. There is the health of the Biden presidency. This is assuming he's running in 2024, which we all assume he is, so he's yet to announce. There's the field of Republican challengers, three right now, more to come soon. And the biggest distraction of them all, one Donald J. Trump, who has been an announced presidential candidate since November 15th of last year. Trump distracts in at least two regards. Number one, his ability to stay in the news and keep noticed. Uh, secondly, the question of how his rivals deal with him when they're insulted, such as Ron Santos has to figure out what to do, plus also how to play his mounting legal woes. Uh, let's begin this podcast, gentlemen. I'd like to go back a little bit in American history, Dave and Doug, and I want to take you back to 1973 and the Comet Kohotek. Doug, Doug, do you remember Kohotek? I do. I, I do, too. I A long time ago, but <laughs> yes, it was, I'm losing what, the thread here, Bill. Longer, is, ago, longer ago for me than you, Rivers. Tr- trust me, I'll, I'll close the loop here in about a half an hour. <laughs> Take only a minute. <laughs> the threat is this. Cohotech was a comet discovered early in 1973, and America caught what we'd call comet fever. Cohotech was coming. It was exciting. It ballet as the comet of the century. Merchandise was sold. Americans went out uh, at night to look for the comet. I think uh, Dave Brady, living in Houston, Texas at the time, uh, committed the parental crime of keeping his daughter up at night to go see Cohotech. And there's one problem here. Cohotech really didn't show up as advertised. Uh, If you look at the statistics on it, I think by the time it finally got here, um, it was barely visible. The naked eye ended up shining 50 to 100 times fainter than anticipated. I mentioned Cohotech for this simple reason. For all anticipation, it didn't quite materialize. And David, Doug, I think that takes us to the question of Donald Trump and his legal problems at this at this time. We all sat through last week what I'd call a Kohotech-like excitement, waiting for Trump to be indicted. Nothing happened. Here we are yet again. Maybe he'll get indicted today. As I mentioned, we're doing this on Monday the 27th. Who knows what the week brings? But there is the question, guys, about Trump and his legal issues and how it plays over the Republican field. Doug, you want to take a crack at this and talk about how Trump's uh, legal matters play? Yeah, so so far, Trump's legal problems have not been hurting him. Uh, He's stable or even up. 
uh, slightly in the last few months. Uh, Ron DeSantis has had a kind of wobbly uh, month or two, um, and he's now clearly down uh, in the polls to Trump. That doesn't mean he won't uh, win the Republican nomination. Uh, the polls at this stage aren't terribly reliable. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, you know Trump leaving the stage, I don't think there's much chance of that. Um, I, I agree with uh, I agree with Doug. I think one thing that when people point out about uh, Trump a phenomenon that doesn't hurt him, if you look at people who are likely to vote in the primary, i.e. is if you break it down, so there's a breakdown in the polls where you look at strong Republican, uh, not so strong Republican, weak leaning Republican. Uh, if you look at the last YouGov economist poll, Republicans in general were 57% saying Trump should run again. But when you break it down by more likely to vote in the primary, 68% of strong Republicans uh, wanted him to run again. So uh, I agree that it. I see no sign that this has affected him. And more importantly, it hasn't affected him among people who are likely to vote in the primary. That is not to say that the indictments might very well hurt him with independents and uh, swing voters who went against him last time and turned the election to Biden. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned independents. Uh, YouGov, uh, Doug, on top of this story as always, and uh, some interesting poll numbers that you guys put out. Uh, 60% of Americans, and I quote here, quote, think it's a crime for a candidate to pay someone to remain silent about an issue that may affect the outcome of an election. And that breaks down. 81% of Democrats agree with that notion, 60% of Republicans. Um, interestingly enough, though, um, se- only 37% of Republicans went along with this notion in 2018. Uh, in 2018, now it's up to 73%. When asked if Donald Trump should face charges, all adults who were surveyed by YouGov, 46% yes, 34% no. Here, a partisan divide, gentlemen, 77% of Democrats saying yes, he should face criminal charges, only 14% of Republicans. And Dave, the independent, 44% saying yes, charges, 30% saying no. Yeah, yeah it pretty much breaks down on party lines. Uh the Democratic base would like to see Trump in an orange jumpsuit, and the Republican base would like to see him back in the White House. So you're telling me the more things change, the more they remain the same? I, I think there's widespread agreement that he should be in some kind of federal house. <laughs> ahead, I Yeah, sorry, Doug. Um, I, it's too early. I mean, it's too early to say that the, uh, I think the most effective, you know, nobody has uh, started really attacking little bit. Pence talked about 2006 being on uh, the January 6th, sorry, being on uh, on Trump. And uh, Chris Christie's gone after him. But I, I think the notion of, you know, we, we lost in, ni- in 2018, we lost in 2020, and we didn't do well as well in 2022. I, I think that uh, is still going to play out and uh, will hurt Trump some. The, the surprising thing to me is, is not Trump, because we've learned over the last six years that the Trump base doesn't move. Uh, he he truly could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and um, his supporters wouldn't block uh, uh, away from him. Um, but uh, Biden is an interesting case that the. Um, Biden is definitely up about five points in approval from where he was a year ago. But uh, 
it's still the case that only 25% of the public wants uh, Biden to run in 2024 compared to, uh, I think it's 36 or 38% for Trump. I'm looking at, um, you know, so it's a, it's a bit below Trump in the fraction that want him to run again. To some extent, you know, it looks to me a little bit like uh, years like 1984 or 94 or even 2014, where you have a incumbent president who's uh, not terribly popular, uh, facing uh, uh, trouble in Congress. Um, and the one thing saving them is that the opposition party is in such disarray um, that, you know, if you look at these numbers, and it's the same was true of um, of Reagan in 1983 or uh, Bill Clinton in 1995 um, or Barack Obama in um, 2011. You're right, Dave. Um, you, you see these presidents that don't look terribly strong politically, uh, numbers aren't great and end up doing pretty well. Um, and uh, it, it certainly, in this situation, the fact that uh, there's one piece of the Republican Party that probably the majority wants Trump to run and get reelected. And then there's a decent chunk that thinks that Trump is a disaster politically. Um, so the Republicans don't really have their act together that way. Yeah, but, by the way, Mammoth University... Mammoth University had a poll out earlier today, Dave and Doug, uh, polling Democrats on the party and um, what they discovered, Mammoth did, 44% of Democrats surveyed don't want Biden to run for another term. Uh, that number is actually higher among uh, those Democrats who call themselves strongly liberal, 52%, 25% want a second Biden term, 30% uh, had no preference. They then segued, um, Dave and Doug, into, okay, fine, if you don't want Biden to run, name a successor. Um, Doug, you want to hazard a guess as to who the frontrunner is? Uh, none of the above. Yes, that wonderful non-binary candidate, none of the above. <laughs> he, well, she, I... he, none of the above, 51%. Kamala Harris, 13%. Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, 6% apiece. Elizabeth Warren, Dave, 4%. I, I guess I'm uh, the I just checked the last YouGov economist poll that I have access to, which I think the most it's the 18th, 19th. Um, and on that, uh, Biden still plurality uh, want Biden to run. but uh, and but there's a significant number. But when you go to strong Democrats, not the very liberal, but strong Democrats, who are the ones, again, more, more likely to vote in the primary, uh, Biden's uh, yeses go to 53 to 25 no, with 21.5 not sure. So while that's not high, it is the case that in addition to the fact that none of these Democrats want to declare because they don't want uh, the st the standard thing. If uh, dem whenever whenever somebody runs against an incumbent president, and they lose. They get blamed. Right. Uh, they don't want that because a lot of them are looking to the future and running at the presidency. But even even taking that into consideration, uh, among this, uh, people more likely to vote in the primary, Biden uh, Biden's uh, better than two to one, uh, wanting him to run again. Oh, I, I think the Democratic nomination race is basically over, absent some lightning strike. Uh, performance in the midterm was enough to make Democrats think they could win uh, with Biden running again. And uh, 
there's no one running against them. It's not like the Republican side where there are half a dozen people who are either declared or will be declared uh, as running against Trump. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I would add that one of the reasons, so, you know, all of Ceteris Paribus, you would say that if the the election were held in a month, I think the result would be like it was in 2020, because there are a sufficient number of Republican voters who, uh, when we poll and ask them who you vote for, uh, switch over. And that number is greater than Democrats switching and uh, Biden holds his own among independents. But, you know, two years, as as you know, Bill's a long time in politics. And who's to say that we won't be in a recession at that time period? So anyone who thinks that uh, just because it was Biden versus Trump, that that means Biden's a surefire winner, that, that just seems wrong to me. Right. Two years is also a long time to figure out who the Republicans will have their nominee. Um, Doug, I went back into uh, uh, the Economist YouGov archives to uh, March of 2015 to figure out who the front runner was in March 2015. Doug, since you nailed the first question, you want to nail this one, too. Who was leading the Republican field in mid-March of 2015? Uh, I assume Jeb Bush. No. No, he was second. I I believe it was the governor of uh, Wisconsin. Oh, Scott Walker. Dave Brady for the win. Scott Walker weighed in with 19%, Jeb Bush 14%, Ben Carson 10%. Donald Trump was not in the survey because he was not an announced candidate. And the first time he was... Well, it was due uh, to the incompetence of the pollsters. Yeah, it was us. (laughs) It was us. Nobody thought he was... Nobody thought he had a chance. We didn't put him in. (laughs) We never blame pollsters on this podcast. We'll let it Uh, go. Anyway, when Trump made his first debut in a YouGov poll, by the way, 2%. He doesn't get a double digits until he actually makes himself a formal candidate. So anyway, the field could change. Oh, sure. The I I don't think the Republican nomination is predictable. That Trump is definitely weaker now than he was in uh, 2016 or um, certainly 2020. Um, there are people willing to challenge him and get in fights with him. Uh, you've seen it with uh, DeSantis. Uh, now and then uh, taking a chop at Trump and uh, Mike Pence uh, uh, as well. So, uh, you know, on the Republican side, there is going to be a contested primary. Um, I would just have to say, as it looks at the moment, I, uh, you know, I would uh, say Trump is more likely than uh, any other candidate to win. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I also, but I also think that, these other candidates, while they're there, they haven't taken any big swings at Trump. I thought DeSantis's notion that Ukraine is just a little regional war and it's not of interest to the United States. I thought that was um, politely kissing up to Trump, staying on the periphery, being on his side. And Nikki Haley hasn't exactly uh, been swinging at him, uh, dancing around, talking about younger people. So they haven't, I, I think the campaign, the anti-Trump campaign hasn't yet really started. Well, essentially, when you look at how they've handled the uh, the uh, uh, would-be indictment in Manhattan uh, over the, uh, the hush payment to Stormy Daniels, and you'll notice that um, the Haley has done this and DeSantis has done this too. They First of all, they go after the prosecutor in no uncertain terms because he's low-hanging fruit for a Republican crowd. But then they turn it on Trump, and while they don't condemn Trump, they make it very clear and let it be known that what's involved here is is a fellow uh, cheating on his third wife at the porn star. No bueno among conservative Republicans, I would assume. 
And and no, it was and the sales was particularly good because I agree it was a great say attacked attacked the attacked the New York prosecutor and then say, well, I wouldn't really know anything about prostitution and and bribing them and stuff like that. I, I don't know anything about that. So I, I thought that was a pretty good ploy. Doug, there were something like what, 16, 17 Republicans running in 2015? Some some ungodly number like that. Uh, the real number was even larger than that, but uh, about 15 real candidates. Yeah. Uh, do you think they'll get to 15 this time? Mm, I doubt it. Is well, that the a- last time when we ran the recontact survey, we asked second choices. And frankly, uh, what, what had happened when you actually run that? So we, we asked if Trump's your first choice, who's your second? Anybody else second? Trump uh, was not the second choice of very many candidates. And uh, given the analysis we had, uh, had the had the uh, sort of mainstream Republicans been able to coalesce around a candidate, uh, look like uh, they would have done very well, but they couldn't. I think this time the Republican money is going to take care of that, right? I thought what Sununu said about I might get in, but I'll get out real quickly because uh, you can tell whether people think you have a chance. Um, can we talk about Ukraine for a second? You know, the DeSantis waffling on Ukraine, uh, you know, for a moment saying uh, we shouldn't be there and then walking it back and then maybe rewalking it back the other direction um, was not a good sign for a well campaign. Um, but the polling on this is pretty interesting. Uh, Republicans have been less supportive of Ukraine uh, than Democrats. Um, but we ran a, a bunch of questions in this week's Economist. And um, the first thing is almost no one, Democrat or Republican, has the warm feelings towards Russia that Trump does. Um, you know, 2% of the Republicans and 3% of the Democrats think Russia is an ally. And 4% of Republicans think Russia is friendly to the United States. Um, you know, so there's just no constituency for supporting Russia. Uh, Ukraine, on the other hand, um, polls better among Democrats. 45% of Democrats say Ukraine's an ally, only 21% of Republicans. But still, there in a, there's an additional 49% of Republicans that say Ukraine's friendly to the U.S. So, you know, by 70%, uh, they uh, declare Ukraine friendly or an ally to the U.S., um, the, the problem has been uh, the belief that Russia will eventually win this. Um, that's, uh, you know, the public, uh, uh, only about 20% of the public thinks Ukraine is actually going to end up uh, winning this conflict. Um, so, you know, to me, the, this is a situation where Trump and uh, Republican leadership is on uh, at least the the anti-Ukraine ones are on sort of um, weakly supported positions uh, and that it, it could potentially be more uh, helpful to Biden um, whenever the president can focus on a foreign policy issue tends to benefit. Uh, and they, I don't think they've pushed that to the extent that maybe they could. I, I don't I don't disagree with that. Yeah, my question, gentlemen, would be when was the last time the Republican Party had a hawkish foreign policy in this regard? You know, comfort with putting boots on the ground, intervening in other nations, getting involved in international conflicts. You go back to 2000. And what did George Bush run on in 2000? He ran on not going to do nation building. And I think, Doug, the word he used uh, throughout the campaign when it came to foreign policy was humility. (laughs) 
uh, a bit ironic, but, uh, you know, I mean, I don't, first, nation building and foreign aid are not uh, popular uh, right. across the board. Right. Uh, what's uh, popular is a strong position for uh, the U.S. military. Uh, that gets the support of Republicans, and these days it gets pretty strong support <laughs> among Democrats, too. Uh, you know, we're not in the 1970s or 80s when there was a big divide on uh, military strength in the U.S. Um, you know, I think the other thing is that uh, foreign interventions are less popular than they used to be. Um, used to be that Republicans were pretty supportive of invading various countries that did things that offended us. Um, Democrats less so. Um, the gap between the parties on that has decreased quite a bit. Uh, but, you know, there isn't a big public constituency for uh, going out there and starting a, uh, a war. Uh, but, but, uh, but Doug, is that a reflection of the first Gulf War, which was quick surgical over parades back here in the United States? That was over 30 years ago. And more recently, yeah. we've had what the uh, we just had the 20th anniversary of Iraq and we just came out of Afghanistan. Yeah, so Afghan, you know, the first Gulf War, uh, the first year or two of Afghanistan, the first year of Iraq, uh, were immensely successful. It showed that uh, the U.S. military was far superior to any rivals around the world and could win uh, conflicts that uh, uh, some people, particularly on the Democratic side, thought would turn into another Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, well, but, you know, as uh, Afghanistan and Iraq soured, the support for doing another one of those, I think, is eroded. Yeah, I, I agree with that, because, frankly, uh, Iraq doesn't look all that stable. You may you may you may be of the opinion that it was a good thing to get rid of Sodom. But uh, the fact is, Iraq is not a bastion of stability there. And the second part, uh, when we got out of Afghanistan, getting out of Afghanistan wasn't exactly smooth. And the result was the headlines, we had 3,000 or 4,000 troops there, as I recall. And uh, the Taliban came in and they were going to do X, no problem with women. And the headlines coming out of what happened in Afghanistan, and particularly to women, given the Taliban, is, is not, they're not good headlines. So it doesn't look like we won. I'd like to shift. I'd like to shift you guys for up to now and talk a little bit about the future of the two parties, which I think is going to be on Americans' minds if in 2024 it does end up being a Biden-Trump matchup. Uh, you two are very involved in this here at the Hoover Institution. You're doing a future of the Democratic Party project. You're also doing a future of the Republican Party project. And let's talk about the Republicans today. What what are you guys up to exactly when we talk about doing a future of the party project? What does that involve with Hoover? Well, the first the first thing we did was, uh, and this has been published, uh, Hoover donors and others have it, and it's a book. Uh, it's in a book edited by Bill Myers and other people called The Elephant in the Room, Donald Trump and the Republican Party. So we had a piece on that, Bill, you worked on uh, and others worked on. We had a survey that uh, Doug, Doug worked on, and we looked at Democratic and Republican Party on issues, how the Republican Party had changed over time, the demographics where uh, more uh, college-educated voters had moved toward the Democrats and uh, worker uh, people who had uh, less than college degrees had moved toward the Republicans. And we looked at some of the effect of those. The end of that first report was, said Donald Trump is the situation. Then I should turn it over rather than to 
a dog or anybody, I should turn it back over to you, Bill, because at that point, you and Bob Grady and Ben and Susan interviewed uh, a bunch of Republican operatives uh, that do polling, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if you want to reveal any names. Uh, and at the end of the, so that, that was going into 2022. And generally, if you talk about what they did, and then the 2022 election just complicates the problem further. So at this point, uh, my understanding is you guys are going back and interviewing them again. Yeah, we are. And I'll keep their names out of it. So they do indeed talk to us again in confidence. Uh, <laughs> so um, this was something I was involved in. Dave uh, mentioned at his behest. Doug, I guess we all work for Dave Brady in one fashion or another. Um, spring and summer of last year, um, I was uh, privileged to sit down with Ben Ginsburg. He's a uh, distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. As uh, Dave also mentioned, Bob Grady, he's a Hoover overseer uh, who has a long history in the Republican Party. He worked uh, in the Bush 41 administration. He is close to Chris Christie. I think he went to high school with Chris Christie. And then uh, Susan McCaw was the third person as well, Master Susan McCaw. Uh, she's also a Hoover overseer. We talked about a dozen consultants in all. And uh, let me give you guys a few highlight points and uh, we can maybe talk about how the data might translate here. Um, we discovered the following, that first of all, pre-Trump, uh, this is a consultant's estimation, pre-Trump, uh, Republicans clearly favored limited government, fiscal restraint, uh, a party considered itself culturally conservative, pro-defense, um, but again, restrained government spending, uh, also supported national defense. Seven years later, this is now with Trump uh, still looming over the field. The Republicans uh, are now less economically conservative, more populist, more isolationist. A couple of poll quotes here, which we found kind of telling. One consultant said, and I quote, the party has gone from Bush to blue collar. Uh, another consultant said, quote, the party is all about the culture wars, pronouns, bathrooms, race and schools, protect women's sports. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a change of um, Republicans um, no longer... Uh, focusing on the issues that have um, traditionally been the basis of Republicans, small small government, low taxes, uh, and the culture issues taking over. You know, the, the issues that I think are actually effective for Republicans, when I look at the polling, are uh, crime and uh, inflation. Um, on the culture war issues, uh, there are two sides, and the public is probably more on the other side of most of the culture issues than, um, uh, you know, that, uh, but on crime and inflation, there is no constituency for crime or inflation. Uh, and Biden gets quite uh, poor ratings on that. And, the, and we've seen some races like the Chicago's mayor's race, um, some of the New York congressional races last time that showed the vulnerability of Democrats uh, on the crime issue. Um, and, uh, you know, I think those actually would work much better for Republicans in the culture war issues. Uh, a second finding from the consultants, Dave, uh, we asked what prompted all of this. And their answer was the root cause here. The root cause is the Tea Party. It's the Tea Party fueled by TARP, Obamacare, Solyndra. For those of you who have forgotten what Solyndra is, it's a California-based solar company that went bankrupt after receiving about a half a billion dollars in uh, federal loan guarantees to the Obama administration. Uh, in the consultant's estimation, Dave, uh, this created an angry faction of Republican voters, and along comes an angry man, Donald Trump, who knows how to capture that anger. Yeah, so um, the Tea Party was a bit of a grassroots effort, not a uh, consultant-led uh, 
uh, and Donald Trump came and added to the Tea Party. Uh, what can you say that Trump added? But it was certainly some secret sauce that supercharged it from being a, a fringe thing to something that uh, pulled a whole new constituency into the Republican Party. Um, and you know, we've got this inversion going at the moment where Republicans are doing uh, better worth with working class white voters that were the you know basis for uh, the Democratic coalition for a generation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would yeah, I would like to say now that I'm unmuted, the uh, the 2016 election, Trump was actually also fortunate that he got the pos the best possible establishment opposition candidate that he could have gotten. The woke issue, I agree with Doug, uh, but the woke issues deter uh, depend upon how far you play it. So the Republicans on the abortion issue, to the extent that they're playing that issue in the stricter sense, you get Kansas, which is there's no redder state than Kansas. And you get on a referendum about 60, 40, 59 and a half to or not, uh, whatever, uh, you get that 40 and a half. A huge win, but if if your policy is uh, less strong on abortion, it's uh, and also the same thing on the woke issues, pronouns, et cetera, et cetera. The Democrats go too far. The Republicans can pick up votes, but the Republicans can go too far on the other side of those issues. And uh, then, so on the whole, I agree with Doug that if you're just looking at the overall picture, probably the culture wars uh, favor the Democrats a bit. But the Democrats can overplay their hand as the Republicans sometimes overplay theirs. Right. So we're going yeah, in right. We're going in to interview the consultants again. And that's in part because after we interviewed them, two things happened. First of all, the Dobbs decision came down and a portion, you know, suddenly became a big part of the 2022 election. And then secondly, what they had told us during the interviews, which is that the best chance for Republicans is to keep the focus on Biden, have a consistent message, which they described as pro-parent, pro-law enforcement, pro-taxpayer. That message got drowned out by Donald Trump's presence again toward the end of the election. So, so Doug, here we are now. And again, it's a question moving into 2024. How do Republicans escape the same trap as in 2022, where they don't have a clearly defined message and Donald Trump is in the headlines? Uh, good luck, because uh, you know, Trump is not willing to uh, play along with this. Um, you know, he was uh, in Waco uh, yesterday, um, focused on January 6th and the election being stolen from him, um, which only wins uh, the support of the true believers. Um, he's making no effort to uh, try to win back the constituencies that Republicans have lost uh, over the last five years. Uh, and uh, I don't think he ever will. I, I think that's that's right. I would take, in my view, a pretty bad recession for those people to come back and say uh, the people that they've lost. And, and I, uh, you know, he has still not said and I don't think he will say that he wouldn't run as a third party candidate if he does, if he loses uh, the election, uh, the nomination, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, and he said he didn't say that in 2016. He didn't do it in 2020. And the odds of his doing it again. And that has to worry uh, Republicans who are worried about uh, losing uh, another election to Joe Biden. Yeah. 
Well, actually, wait a second. If you go back to the first debate in 2015, which was in Cleveland, Republicans hold their first debate where they plan to hold their national convention. Uh, there were two big stories coming out of that, both involving Trump in that debate. One was his crass remarks toward Megyn Kelly. Uh, and then the second was Trump uh, very openly suggesting that if he didn't get his way, he might run as a third party candidate. So there was that briefly at play in 2015. And Dave and Doug, we still see this around in uh, today in 2023, the Republicans have a debate in August. They haven't set a date for it. Uh, one of the reasons why they have yet to set a date is because they want uh, the Republican National Committee wants a loyalty pledge that anybody who goes on the debate stage agrees to support the nominee. But I'm not sure if all the candidates want to agree to that loyalty pledge. My guess is that uh, almost all of the candidates other than one right. uh, would be willing to raise their hand and say they would are going to vote for the Republican nominee. Which one would that be? <laughs> uh, Nikki Haley? Yeah. <laughs> Vivek yeah. Ramaswamy? Yeah. No? Yeah. Um, no. You know, I, I think most Republican professionals believe that Trump is a weaker candidate than many of the other potential Republican nominees. Um, that's not to say that Trump would necessarily lose the 2024 election. He almost won the 2020 election. Um, but... You know, I, I think it's likely that if the Republicans nominated someone other than Trump, they would have a good chance of uh, clawing back some of that support that Republicans have lost in the suburbs uh, to Democrats. I, I absolutely agree with that. When when we've run a couple of uh, runs, uh, Trump uh, versus Biden, DeSantis versus Biden, uh, Trump uh, loses to Biden and uh, DeSantis is either uh, DeSantis is dead even with him within mar within margin yeah. of error. So it's, it's usually the other candidates they have a higher fraction that don't knows, which is what you'd expect at this point. Uh, but their uh, unfavorables are lower than Trump. Um, there's essentially, you know, I would say a majority of voters, maybe not a majority of electoral votes. Uh, are dead set opposed to voting for Trump. Uh, they will not consider voting for him. I, I think that's, that's probably right. And the big reason is you get the, the, the Republican, there are more Republicans who said they would defect. And I'm looking at the last polls we did. The, there are more Republicans that would defect to the Democrat with the Trump candidacy. That, that drops dramatically if it's DeSantis. And more importantly, among independents, uh, Trump, uh, when it's Trump, uh, Biden does very well, uh, either is dead even or wins by a little. And if it's DeSantis, Biden loses by over 20 points. And I think if we, we haven't done it, but I think if we put in some other candidate, Nikki Haley, somebody like that, I think uh, independence would uh, go, uh, Trump is the only one that uh, drives independence to equality with uh, Biden, and any other candidate won't do that. Independents really don't want Biden to run. So in addition to waiting to see what happens with Donald Trump and his uh, legal travails, there is also the waiting game that is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The expectation being that he will jump into the race uh, June, I think, is what we look at now. That's based in part upon his uh, day job in Florida, where he still has a budget to deal with and a legislative session as well. But Doug, the question getting back to Kohotek. See, I told you I'd bring this around. Uh, <laughs> With Kohotek, how does Ron DeSantis avoid not being a underperforming comet as well? I mean, the old, the old cliche, what the best, the best poll you get the day you announce. So how, 
How does DeSantis actually, once he jumps into the race, how does he proceed forward? And this little nugget from the consultants that have used stands out. I want to get your thoughts on this too, Doug. Uh, a consultant told us, and I quote, people want a combative style of politics. This is a feature, not a bug. Yeah, so uh, DeSantis does fine on combativeness. Uh, the place he seems uh, not quite ready for prime time is he's not a natural politician. Right. Um, and uh he doesn't seem to, uh, well, he hasn't gone through a national campaign like this. So it's easy for him to screw up the way he did on Ukraine. Dave? I, I think he's uh, he's going to have to go after Trump. He hasn't really gone after him. Again, the little bit of polling I've seen and followed that says, Trump, you took us uh, down the road. You won in 2016 narrowly. You lost in 2018. You lost in 2020. And in 2022, you cost us the Senate just like you did in 2020. You have bad count. That has not been hit up enough. And I do think among even among Republican supporters, they don't want uh, they don't want to see Biden reelected. And uh, to the extent that the uh, the field of Republican candidates can make Republicans worry about if it's Trump, you're going to get Biden again. Then I think that's that's their best that's their best message. So I, I think DeSantis is trying to avoid the uh, murder suicide pact of him taking on Trump directly and yep. hoping that someone else would do it or Trump would do it to himself. Um, Trump, on the other hand, has taken up uh, attacking DeSantis with gusto. Uh, he's not afraid of that. Uh, my guess is that if Trump loses the Republican nomination, um, it will be difficult for him to run a third party race. Not impossible, but difficult. Um, and define uh, difficult because I can you can say difficult in terms of money, difficult in terms of logistics. Oh, you mean you mean, you mean well, the first is logistics that Trump is not an organization guy who has the kind of machine necessary to get him on the ballot everywhere. Second, um, second, Doug, there are a lot of sore loser laws across America, a lot of them in states that he won in 2016 and 20. Yeah, I, I do wonder whether those are constitutional in general. But, uh, so, so we should but they have to spend money then out. suing all the states. <laughs> yeah, but the viewers, the viewer, uh, the people listening, they don't know what a, the sore loser laws are laws passed in uh, various states. Uh, so it differs state to state. And those laws say something like the following, that someone who loses in a primary Right. Can't get back in as a third party candidate, i.e. be a sore loser and spoil things. That's a little difficult in presidential elections, because think about it. In every president, every president loses a primary somewhere. So if the pre if you lose a primary in uh, Texas, I mean, so at the federal level, I'm I'm in agreement with Doug. I think it's probably uh, that law is going to be less helpful, that less understandable on a national level. And I don't think, but the point is, he doesn't have to be, if he gets involved in uh, four or five big states and pulls 15, 18%, yeah. that could be enough. I mean, if yeah, he's Dave's enough, definitely right he about that. But if yeah. Trump wants to be a spoiler, uh, he can. Yeah. Uh, he will go to Georgia, he'll go to Arizona, he'll go to Nevada, he'll go to Wisconsin. Right? Yeah, Texas, probably Texas yeah. too. Um. As, as I think I said on an earlier show, uh, the Democratic National Committee should offer to pay his campaign expenses if he's willing to do that. Yeah. Good <laughs> <Make point. it> <laughs> All 
Okay, since I trotted out a 70 analogy with Kohotek, Doug, I'm going to try another 70 analogy out on you, and that is the game show Let's Make a Deal. Remember Monty <laughs> Hall? Uh, yes. How did Let's Make a Deal work? There was door number one, door number two, and door number three. We've talked. This is beginning one. to sound like a uh, probability problem. Yeah, that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> we have talked door number one with Trump, door number two with DeSantis, but the question would be, and this is always a feature on Let's Make a Deal, what's behind door number three? And here I'm focusing on one person in particular, and that is Tim Scott, the junior senator mm -hmm. from South Carolina, uh, who has a lot of money right now, so he has a good war chest, so he can go out and spend, so you can see a lot of ads from him on Fox News and so forth. But David Doug, what captures, uh, what has my attention about uh, Scott, he's a nice guy, and he is running on optimism and a better America. He is not really spending a lot of time as DeSantis and Trump do, kind of attacking, attacking, attacking. He is talking up his own biography, his grandfather who's literate and so forth. Question, gentlemen, is there room for aspirational politics in today's Republican Party? Iowa's, you know, a pretty good state for uh, somebody like him, uh, that uh, there's a large evangelical population. Uh, uh, Trump is a little less popular there than he is uh, in uh, most Republican states. Uh, and uh, he lost there in 2016 to Ted Cruz. <laughs> uh, the thing people are thinking about is, can someone upset Trump uh, in an early primary? And then uh, does his support uh, fold at that point? I'm suspicious of any uh, forecast that Donald Trump is going to disappear. But, you know, that's how it could happen, that uh, he loses uh, Iowa. Uh, and uh, uh, followed by a loss in New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, his campaign would be on the ropes and uh, maybe out. That's that's why I was saying earlier that the, uh, the best campaign against Trump is you lost, you, you actually lost in 2016, the popular vote. You lost in 2018, 2020, 22. And now you're losing these primaries. You're going to cost us. The presidency and I, you you may remember and and uh i think it was 1948 at the uh republican convention where no i'm 52 you where, remember that like, bill 52 where well it's a historical point i'm, I'm sorry it's, you probably were born yeah, I went back to the 70s he's back in the 50s. In 1952 <laughs> when thomas dewey who lost the presidency for the republicans in 40 and for uh, 44 and 48 uh, they pointed to him and said, you took us down the trail, the wrong trail twice, blah, blah, blah. And he, he went nowhere. So I, I still think that's the best issue. And losing uh, one or two of those early primaries builds on that point. Uh, so I, I, I think that's the best campaign against him. And at the margin, some of uh, some of his voters, they may be really uh, like him or like his policies but they're not going to want to lose. And that the question is, how many of those voters are there? I think there's enough of them to keep him from the nomination. But the other question, Dave, is are those voters transferable? If Trump were to go down in the primaries, will his people vote for a Republican in the general election or will they send it out or will they channel that energy into some gadfly further down on the ballot? Well, what we know is very few people sit out elections who are voting presidential primaries. Uh, right. They're unhappy, uh, but they tend to get over it. Uh, you know, I, I think the wild card here is that Trump uh, is unlikely to just go quietly. Yeah. The best, 
the best evidence for what Doug just said was exactly right is what happened. The third party candidacy of George Wallace and then the 30, third party candidacy of Ross Perot. Those started out much higher. And as you get closer to the election, it falls away because it looks like it's a uh, it looks like it's a wasted vote. And you get uh, mu uh, uh, much more uh, results that are much closer to the normal result. Still, not to say that they neither of those candidates made a difference. They did. But the fall off as you get closer to the election and people who say they're voting for him is pretty, pretty dramatic. Yeah, but I'm curious about the transferability because Trump did go around the country in 2022 and he campaigned for Dr. Ross in Pennsylvania and he campaigned for Carrie Lake and he campaigned for Herschel Walker. And what do those people have in common? They lost. Yeah, I thought they all won, actually. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Depends who you talk to. Yeah. <laughs> well, will Trump, if he starts losing Republican primaries, uh, say they're stolen from him? No, it's it's a fascinating element to watch because there is such a thing as um, as getting out with grace, and there's nobody better who exemplifies that than Kamala Harris, who ran a very problematic Democratic campaign. But she did two things that were smart in retrospect. Number one, she used the debate stage uh, stage to pick a fight with Joe Biden, which got her noticed and got her to the front of the pack. And then secondly, when her campaign went down the drain, she was smart enough to get out in December of twenty. Uh, 2019 before she went through the gauntlet of Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and you know had embarrassing performances and also racked up a lot of campaign debt and future headaches so there is such a thing as getting out early but you know I just don't know if Donald Trump has it in his DNA to to say I quit didn't work for Scott Walker excuse me excuse me you absolutely do know Bill whether he has it in his DNA to get it out. And the answer is no. I was trying to do the more academic speculation. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Okay, We're impressed, so, though. So let's close on this note, gentlemen, since you follow the polls, you study the polls. For the listener out there who likes to follow the horse race, likes to see these dynamics, why should they really start bothering to look at these things? To me, to me right now, looking at polls head-to-head, -head, Dave, opening day is on Thursday. So to me, looking at you know what's going on in Iowa right now, New Hampshire, that's like getting excited about spring training in Arizona. Exactly. Wait a minute. Getting excited about spring training in Arizona is probably a little more relevant. You know, the idea we're going to follow these scores and some team that's, you know, 10 games above 500 in the Cactus League, they're going to win the World Series. It doesn't work out that way. Yeah, so. No, that doesn't. That prediction doesn't work. But, but there's real balls and strikes and there's real games. And that there's no, that's just all games and no, no elections here. I don't know what Doug, when do you say you, they should start paying attention? Labor Next, Day. December, December of, uh, December this year. You say December, I think he says Labor Day. We'll have a much better uh, view of things after the summer's over. Um, that it, it's hard, not impossible, but, uh, time is running out for you if you're not competitive, uh, uh, in September, October. Um, and these people must Plus we'll have plenty of debates at that point. But they they must also be getting signals from donors now. And a part of the Republican, a uh, part of Republican donors have decided they don't want Donald Trump. He didn't get a, a oh. endorsement. Uh, so we have to see about that. So but and he's the one candidate that doesn't need uh, donors. Well, this uh, is a he's got a bunch of money and B, uh, everyone's opinion about Donald Trump is already fixed. Uh, so, I got that, but those um, donors may the effect well. of money on Trump support is negligible. I, I mean, that's not what I meant. I'm talking about the other candidates yeah. 
those donors ought to be trying to hone in on who has the best chance against him. Well, those other candidates, Dave, are going to have to figure out a very good social media donation game because something has changed here, and that's the ability to raise money over the Internet. Uh, I went back and did some homework on George W. Bush's run in 2000 because I've been trying to parallel that to DeSantis. And Bush got in in June of um, of uh, 1999, uh, had a huge lead in the field. I mean, just had about 50, 60 percent of support in the field. Uh, it was not really a competitive race until next year when McCain kind of came out of nowhere. Um, but he then had to go about and physically raise money. I remember this being here in California. He would come out a lot and, uh, and make appearances because back then people just just did not like to make campaign contributions over this newfangled thing called the internet. Fast forward now to the candidates and running in 2024 uh, and look for this with DeSantis. So on the day he announces, he will do what's called a money bomb. He will, he will at the same time uh, try to raise an obscene amount of money over the internet just to show how strong he is. Interesting note, by the way, Trump did this with his legal travails. After he announced that he was going to be indicted last week, which didn't happen, he also did a money bomb. He only got a million dollars in his money bomb, which by Trump standards, by natural candidate standards, pretty paltry. Oh, what did DeSantis do? Well, I don't, we don't, well, no, he actually done it yet. no oh. but, he, but he raised a great gob of money in his, in his governor's race. That'll be part of the expectation. The point yeah. is you can go to the internet and raise a lot of money, but you got to do it through small donors, not big bundlers. It yeah. means you need to go social game. It means you've got to be out there and active in other ways, but it also means you got to find your way to wedge yourself into this race. If the auction is going to be consumed by Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. No disagreement there. No disagreement. Same here. Okay. All right, gentlemen, I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, enjoyed the conversation today. I'm glad you enjoyed our little trip into the 70s with Gohotek and <laughs> back into the 50s with uh, <laughs> Adley Stevenson, was it? Can we, can we do I think it? it was the 40s with uh, Thomas Dewey. Can we do Can we do Bob Dylan next time in the 70s change the country music then? Can we do that? <laughs> That's right. The answer is, my friend, they're blowing in the wind, right? Yes. <laughs> Okay. Well, gentlemen, thanks for the conversation today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. As per usual, keep doing the great work and look forward to working with you on the future of the Republican and Democratic parties. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. If you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dave Brady is not on social media, but Doug Rivers is. His Twitter handle is at Doug underscore Rivers. YouGov, his excellent polling uh, company, is also on uh, Twitter. Uh, Twitter handle there is at YouGov. That's spelled Y-O-U-G-O-V. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the show. That's hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. delivers the best work of Dave Brady and Doug Rivers and their Hoover colleagues your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.